Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 18. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. Mystery, mystery. Romantic love is a mystery. It's beautiful, it's entrancing. It makes things happen to you that are a little bit scary because you're out of control, you can't work, you're not thinking straight, you're absorbed in the thoughts and maybe in the presence of the one you love. You want to, it makes you want to give yourself to the other person. Till death do us part, you say. And it leads to marriage. It leads to happiness and joy in this gift of marriage that God has given us. We've been looking at Proverbs uh, and thinking about how it helps us to be God's children, how God parents us, you might say, but also learning how we can parent our children and how it helps us to do that. And what we find, and I'd like to have us think about this, is that a, a happy marriage is a nest, is the key place, the nest in which God wants to raise strong and godly children. So here's, here's how I'd like to do it. I'd like to look at three mysteries. First of all, the tender mystery with which marriage begins, and then the tragic mystery which uh, sometimes degrades that tender love, and then the profound mystery of how a happy marriage has the power to proclaim to children the love of Christ Jesus. So let's begin with our text, Proverbs 30, 18 through 20. And it's speaking here about this tender mystery of how a marriage begins. This follows this formula, X, X plus one. You know, there are six things, no, there's seven. There's four things, no, there's five. And it's a poetic form where the last thing mentioned is the point of it all, the climax of it all. And here it says there's three mysteries, no, there's four. And the fourth is the one on which we should focus. A majestic eagle soaring through the air. They, it's amazing, though, when you look at them, isn't it? They don't even flap their wings. They just sort of turn a little bit on their shoulders, and they ride high in the sky on the currents that are rising up from the earth. How do they do it? Nobody really knows, you know. How do airplanes stay in the air? There was a recent article in a scientific magazine just declaring this very fact that how airplanes and eagles and birds fly is still not completely explained. You know, here's an airplane, a jet engine, 150,000 pounds or more of steel floating through the air. How does that happen? It's still a mystery 3,000 years after Solomon. Then he turns his attention to the ground and he says there's a serpent sunning himself on the rock. Serpents which usually remain hidden. You know, they're slithering between rocks or they're, they're in bushes. They don't want to be seen. They, you hardly ever see a snake. But here's one on a, uh, on a rock because it's a reptile. It has to maintain its temperature externally. And so here it is sunning himself, raising its temperature a bit, the way, the way you do when you put a blanket on at night and maybe when it gets too warm, you throw it off. Here's a, a reptile out in the open, 
And then he turns his thoughts to ships weighing thousands of tons, tons of steel, sometimes concrete, and they float. Isn't that amazing? How, how does that happen? Archimedes wondered about that. He was taking a bath and he couldn't figure it out. That was 700 years after Solomon. And he was taking this bath and as he got into the tub, he realized that the water level got up. You've noticed that. How many have ever taken a bath? No, don't answer that. You know, he got into the tub and the water level went up. And he says, that's it. My body, submerged body, lifts up water. So if the amount of water, the weight of the water I lift up is more than my body, I would float. And he, he got so excited by that concept of buoyancy that he didn't even bother to get dressed. He ran out into the city shouting, Eureka, Eureka, I've got it. I understand. I finally understand. 700 years after Solomon. These are mysteries. But Solomon says there's something more profound than all of that. It's the way of a man with a maiden. It's your marriage. It's the love you have as husband and wife. He's saying, don't take this tender mystery for granted. It's something wonderful. I, I don't know. After the years have passed, maybe those of you who are married don't remember those feelings anymore. The wonderful, scary, giggly, tingly feelings when you couldn't think of anything else but each other. You wanted to be with each other forever because you couldn't stand the thought of being apart. The best thing you could imagine was spending your lifetime with each other. Some of you remember that. I had a friend named Don. Uh, he got married several years before I did, and I, I asked him, so what made you decide to marry Linda, Don? What, what was it? He says, well, he was a mathematician, way too analytical. He says, well, I would take Linda out on a date, and then I would drop her off at her house, but you know, we'd sit in the car and we'd talk and talk and talk and talk, and after a while, I figured out it'd be a lot more efficient to just get married. <laughs> yeah. Efficiency, right. I'm sure that's what it was. There was another mathematician a couple hundred years earlier, Pascal, who I think had it better. He said, the heart has reasons that reason knows nothing about. Something's happening that's out of our control. We can't quite figure it out. And yet, it envelops us. Wonderful beginnings. That's the first lesson of our, our text. The mystery can be scary, but... It's wonderful. It can be especially scary for children who have grown up in homes where they've seen mom and dad living together like roommates. Or in homes where the marriage is filled with tension. Do I really want this, they think? Is this what romantic love is all about? How can my marriage be better? And so they're, they're scared. What can I do to make sure my marriage works out? Well, if you're Christian, and let me just address those who are wrestling with that, who are considering getting married or finding a mate. Let me just say that for Christians, you have to trust in God's word. You can't play the odds the way everybody else does. We're different. People say, well, you know, to increase my odds of making my marriage work, we'll live together for a while. It sounds wonderful. You know, you like driving a car for a while, like taking something out on, you know, renting something and seeing if it's the kind of appliance you want. The problem is that without that public pledge of lifelong commitment, 
Living together is more like a long date than marriage. Each partner is still trying to win the other. They're still on their best behavior. You don't really get a taste of married life. And what's even worse, it's, it's very interesting, and uh, you'll see people are still arguing and debating about this, but all kinds of studies show that the statistics that those who live together before marriage are actually a lot more likely to get divorced after they get married. But even worse, for us as Christians, more than those statistics, is why forfeit God's blessings? Hebrews 13, verse 4, says, Let the marriage bed, it's talking about intimacy, it's talking about sleeping together. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Why? Why begin, Christians, why begin marriage with the shadow of God's displeasure on you. Don't we want to begin marriage with God's blessings, God's grace abounding in our marriage? So yeah, I, I think people who grow up, they're seeing marriages that aren't working out, maybe their own parents' marriages, and they say, how can we make it work? And I say, trust God's word. In fact, let me very briefly give you some practical instructions. I'd say, if you're a Christian... Find a husband or a wife, find a man or a woman who loves Jesus more than that person will love you. You say, that's ridiculous. I want to be the center of their life. No. The first commandment, Matthew 28, uh, 22, verse uh, 38, says that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if someone doesn't have that first commandment right, their heart isn't right. And of course, that means we have to make sure that we're obeying that commandment above all also, make sure that it's someone who loves Jesus with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Secondly, someone who demonstrates an ability to have good relationships. If they are quarreling, and that's what Proverbs chapter 20 talks about, if it's someone who's quarrelsome and fights with other people and can't get along, why do you think they're equipped to get along with you when you get married? Find someone who has good relationships with parents and siblings and friends. It's a sign that they know how to have mature and interesting, interestingly deep relationships. And then lastly, check with others. Consult with parents and church leaders. Consult with your wisest friends. That's what Proverbs 11 verse 14 says. There's, there's safety in many counselors. Listen carefully for any hesitation from those who know you because they may see things in this potential partner that you can't see because you're blinded by this love. It's a wonderful beginning. It's magical. But marriage, which begins with this tender mystery, sometimes, very tragically and mysteriously, can degrade. And so, how is it you know, like the old song writer once wrote, now that we love, now that the lonely nights are over, how do we make love last? That's the question. How do we make love last? And for a lot of people, there's no answer at all. They just throw their hands up. I, I really don't think we can, they say. It's tragic. It's tragic for the man and the woman when love begins to cool off like that. But Here's my point. It's also tragic for the children. Because a happy marriage is the nest in which we raise godly children. 
Happiness is critical. I don't know if you've ever seen those videos. You should look them up. It's actually heartbreaking of a toddler uh, with the mom and dad fighting. You know, the toddler starts out, he's playing with a toy, and then mom and dad begin to fight in the back. And at first he doesn't hear them, and then he hears them, and he quits playing. Then his eyes get really big. You can see fear and anxiety. Then his lips start to quiver, and then he starts crying. He's stressed. He knows the anxiety. He knows it's not right. In fact, studies show, let me just quote this for you, that children as young as six months are affected by tension in a home. Kindergartners, in a long-term study, whose parents fought frequently and, and meanly, I might say, experienced depression and anxiety by the time they reached seventh grade. They did poorly in school and they were unable to control their emotions and were hostile and fought with other children. It affects our children. When there's a tension in the home, it affects our children. One woman writes this. I, I thought these words encapsulate, captured what I'm trying to say. When I was a child, she says, my parents' fights could suck the oxygen out of a room. My mother verbally lashed my father, smashed jam jars, made outlandish threats. Her outbursts froze me in my tracks. When my father fled to work, the garage, or the woods, I felt unprotected. Unprotected. You see, the nest is broken. Your marriage is the nest in which we're raising godly children. And this woman felt like the nest, nest was slowly being ripped apart. Where is their safety? Where is their security? Now, of course, here's the problem. It takes two to make a happy marriage, doesn't it? And there's many cases, unfortunately, where parents, one parent is all by herself or all by himself. It could be the tragedy of death or it could be the tragedy of divorce, but it could also be a different kind of tragedy. It could be the tragedy of spiritual singleness. It could be that your partner, your husband, or your wife has rejected God's way, is stubborn, selfish, self-absorbed, doesn't care about anything else, not even you. I have to tell you that you're not alone. In fact, if you look at the Bible, there's lots of examples of marriages just like that. May I just mention two of them? You might find them interesting. The first is Abigail and Nabal. It's in 1 Samuel 25. Nabal was a stubborn man. He, he was, as you read the story, too dull to see the consequences of his own words and of his own actions. He drank and he partied way too much. Interestingly, Nabal, his name means fool, which is interesting because you think, why did his parents name him that? I, I, I actually can't think that they did. I can't imagine, you know, the baby's born, the dad's holding him up, and he says, honey, he looks just like a fool. Let's call him fool. <laughs> just can't imagine that. So I don't know what happened. Maybe they gave him a different name, like Nabil, which means esteemed, noble. But as he grew up, he was anything but esteemed and noble, and his friends gave him a different nickname, Nabal, a drunk impious, foolish, and that nickname stuck. But imagine being his wife. Women, imagine being married to Nabal. Every time you go to the grocery store, people say, hey, there's Mrs. Fool. You're stuck with him. 
Everything he does in some way reflects on you. It was a tough life for his wife, Abigail. And 1 Samuel 25 tells this critical event where Nabal insults David. David is not yet king officially, but, you know, he's a man with a small army. It's pretty dumb to insult the guy with an army. And Abigail has to intervene. She runs to David and pleads for the life of her husband and her family. As you read this, you know that Abigail had to run the place all by herself. Uh, it says that there was 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. So there was ranch hands, there was servants, there was much land. She was like a Proverbs 31 woman, buying and selling and, and keeping track of everything that was happening in her household and making sure everything was the way it was supposed to be. And besides that, bailing out her foolish husband over and over. All by herself. See, that happens sometimes. She has a husband, but really she's all by herself. But the Lord took care of her. You know that the Lord was with her. Uh, in fact, she ended up becoming queen of Israel. But maybe even more significantly, she's remembered all through the generations. All kinds of girls are named in honor of her. And not a single boy is named in honor of her husband. Yeah, Abigail and, and Nabal. Sometimes you may think, that's what my marriage is like. Look at another couple, Job and his wife. Uh, read the first couple chapters of Job when you have time. It's a, it begins with this tremendous tragedy that strikes this family. Uh, they lose all their children. They die in a, in a freak accident. I, I can't imagine the heartache of, of that. I don't know if you can. Sometimes these kinds of tragedies draw a couple together. You know, they... They, they're on their knees together, they're crying together, they're consoling each other together, but that was not the case here. Instead, Job's wife attacked his faith. God? What God? What are you talking about? Her grieving husband was clinging to his faith. You know, in chapter 13, verse 15, you can just see him, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. He's just clinging, and she comes to him and says, Here's my advice, Job. Curse God and die. Abandon your faith and then kill yourself. That's what I think you should do. Actually, as you read Job chapter 2, you see there's a frightening, frightening look behind the curtain because we see that these words that she's saying was exactly what Satan wanted to accomplish. Curse God. She was actually, imagine this, his wife was actually an agent of the evil one. It happens. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 10, Job calls his wife Nabal, the feminine form of that word, fool. She was also a fool who rejected God. He too was married to a fool. We don't ever hear of her again, but Job, we know, is remembered for his faithfulness to God in, in a time of great trial. Yeah, sometimes you're alone. It's very hard. Even if you're not actually unmarried, you might be spiritually single. And those of you who are married to a Nabal know this challenge firsthand. And we've spent months now, the last several months, looking at Proverbs for, for wisdom on how to parent children in all sorts of circumstances, whether you're a single parent or whether you're divorced or whether you're spiritually single. But as I close, I'd like to have us 
address those who are married where husband and wife both profess faith in Christ. Two Christians who are married together. Let me just then, for my third mystery, turn to that. There's a profound mystery that you ought to understand. You have to guard and nurture what you have because a happy marriage, your happy marriage, is the key to raising your children and helping them to understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's true whether your children are little toddlers or whether they're grown up, whether they're out of this home, whether they're married. Your marriage is still proclaiming that that truth. So here's what I'm saying. By God's grace, with prayer, on your knees, uh, surrender to his words, put aside your pride, do whatever you have to to make your marriage happy. I know when you hear that, we say, well, I've done all I can. You don't understand. There's nothing more I can do. I can't think of anything. I don't want to add to your pain by doubting that, but Proverbs 21.2 does ask a question. And I have to say, after years of talking to people who are married and seeing marriages, I think this question is a very good one. 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. We don't really see ourselves as we ought to. Much easier to see the faults and the changes that are required in the other person, but we have a hard time seeing the changes that we have to make in ourselves. Are you sure? Are you sure you've done everything that you need to do? So if love is cold, if you're living like roommates, there's no delight in being with each other. Remember this, your children are noticing it. They know it. I wonder what it tells them. So what do you do? How do you regain that first mystery, that tender love that you had when you first met? I don't think there's any way for me to summarize, let's say, you know, these marriage conferences and all these books on marriage, but let me give you just some simple advice from the book of Proverbs. So first, Proverbs 19, 14, it says, that house and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. You see, your marriage is God's gift to you. So particularly, I would say, husbands, prize your wife. Prize your wife. It's a change of attitude because she's a gift from God. You dishonor God if you dishonor your wife or if you don't value her. And then maybe we could read Proverbs 31, 10 through 12. An excellent wife who can find. She's more precious than jewels. Yeah, this is echoing what I just read. But then it says, She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Wives, do your husband good always. Let it be that whenever he sees you coming, he knows a blessing is coming into his life. Like that woman who said the husband fled into the garage or the woods. Let it never be. Let him see blessing and rest and peace coming from you. So this is something that we see everywhere in Scripture. Husbands, prize your wives. Wives, bless your husbands. But it can degrade, can't it? Wives who once looked upon their husband with unabated admiration now grow to despise them somewhat because now over the years weaknesses have come to the surface. And now they begin to compare their husbands to other men. 
that begin to think it might be better if someone else was in her life. And she thinks she's keeping all these feelings hidden, but he sees it clearly, and the children see it clearly. And then there's husbands who used to find every single thing that this woman did endearing, and now the very same things they find exasperating. So he has a list now of things that she should change if their marriage is going to be happy. He may never utter it, but he rehearses it in his mind. And he compares her to other women and maybe to a particular woman that he's found. Love has grown cold and she feels the chill. And you know what else? The children notice it. The children know what's going on. And the worst part of all this, that's what I'm my theme is today, the worst part is that the gospel message is silenced because there's a profound mystery about your marriage. More profound than eagles flying or snakes sunning on a rock or more profound than even the way of a man with a maiden. More profound than how marriage, in other words, begins. Your marriage is a powerful way to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with your children, no matter their age. Your happy marriage, your joyful marriage is a way to proclaim the gospel. Here's what Ephesians 5, verse 32 says. You know this text. The preceding verses have described a godly marriage. Here's what husbands should do. Here's what wives should do. And then it says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it, namely marriage, refers to Christ and the church. It's a profound mystery. But your marriage really is a picture of Christ and the church. Your happy love, your tender love is a picture of the love that Jesus has for his people, for your children. You're demonstrating it. You don't have to preach it or lecture it. Oh, how can that be, you say? I think Solomon would be baffled. It's a mystery as deep as the other mysteries he mentions in the text that we're considering. Maybe he would add this as a fifth mystery, which would be Deeper and more profound than the one that he ended with before. It's a mystery, just like our text. But it's something that's behind reason. It's something that is underneath reason. It's something that's beyond reason. It's, it's a mystery that in some way the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through your happy marriage speaks directly to the hearts of your children. It proclaims this gospel in loud and clear and unmistakable tones. So what am I saying? Oh, be happy. Christians who are married, be happy. Do whatever you can to be happy. Make whatever changes in yourself you can to be happy. Pray that you would be happy in your married life. And may God bless you with happy marriages that would bring glory to the gospel, glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it would bless your children. Amen. Lord Jesus we know that you love us. We know it's a rich and profound love. It's even a, a joyful love as John expressed in his first letter. And it elicits, it arouses joy and love in us. And we thank you for that. We, we pray for especially married people in our congregation today, all of us, Lord. Whether our children are young or whether they're mature and have families of their own. Lord, we pray that our love for one another as husband and wife would glorify your love for your people. And we 
pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to proclaim your gospel in this way. Pray for those children, Lord, who are in homes where there's tension and strife. Oh, God, may your grace abound to them especially. They may not have this particular proclamation of the gospel, but Lord, we know you love them. and We know that in a hundred other ways you would reach them and show them your love. All this we pray through Jesus our Lord. Amen. John's Gospel 13, verse 35, says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So I, I pray, I pray that we would love one another as brothers and sisters in this church family, as parents and children, as husbands and wives. I pray that we would love in such a way that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be glorified. Amen.